Hi, welcome to the very first episode of COVID On Air. Now, uh, before I get going with this introduction to this initial episode and the, the discussion that I had, which is comprising the, the bulk of the episode, I'm going to give a bit of a premise for the show as a whole, a, a rundown as to what I want to do. And you know, if you're starting off here with me from day one, or if you're coming in months down the road, then here's something you can look at if you're starting with this uh, initial episode as to what I plan to do with the show and where it very well may go. Um, as well, too, I think it can serve as a flag, as a, a spot in time that the audience or myself can look back upon and see how the show may or may not have uh, modified or, or changed from what where I initially wanted to take it. Uh, first, now, I want to thank a few people at, uh, at ECV that, that helped me get the ball rolling on this and, and get it off and trucking. So thanks to Jeremy, Rami, Katie, Sarah, and Derek. Now, this show is going to be centered around discussions with the interesting guests I'm going to have on. Uh, the show is a component of endcoronavirus.org, and ECV is an organization advocating a COVID elimination strategy. I, myself, am not surprisingly partial to that, and implementing zero COVID is certainly my conviction, but the, the show as a whole is not going to be centered around zero COVID. The show will be on as wide an array of topics as possible regarding the ongoing pandemic. With that, I hope to inform and provoke thought concerning this crisis. I think there's a chance with hearing enough information and conversation that you may reach the same conclusions I have. But first and foremost, I want anyone to think for themselves. Uh, with that, I aspire to expand the public dialogue around this disease, as too much of that dialogue has been riddled with various thought that is quite orthodox. I really hope you enjoy this endeavor and obtain something from it. I'll note, too, that podcasting as a whole appears to live in a sphere where there is, at least for now, a reward mechanism of sorts for earnest material. Many of the most popular shows, whether you like them or not, do have a degree of sincerity less common on previous mediums. Although, of course, this doesn't apply to them all. For better or worse, podcasting is offering something new. And let's see if I contribute to this world in any worthwhile way, or be at the very least entertaining. Uh, for most, podcasting is fairly passive, so you're likely listening this well. Driving, and cleaning, Maybe making dinner, perhaps you're have a, roasting a pig on the spit or making some avocado toast or getting yourself all gussied up in the morning. Uh, with that, I feel I have a responsibility to make this as engaging as possible. So if I'm so absolutely frustrating that you're alighting your avocado toast on fire and destroying it, well, maybe in that case it's all for the best or you're smashing your mop handle into the wall, or you're accidentally stabbing your eye with lipstick in a state of frantic ire, or I'm so boring that I'm causing 
cars to fly off the road and explode from people being so exhausted. Well, I do apologize. And uh, I'll aim for some improvements. Now, I'd love to hear anyone's feedback for the show. Uh, with that, you can find me on Twitter at Mr. Farden, M-R-F-A-R-D-E-N, or email me via mail at covidonair.org. I hope you enjoy the show and, as well, what unfolds over time through this discourse. Now, uh, for the episode. Today, I talked with Vicky Vandertoch. Uh, Vicky is the founder of the Zero COVID Alliance. She's one of the members and founding members of Containment New uh, in the Netherlands. She is a major long COVID advocate. She herself has been suffering uh, from this ailment for quite some time. She would have been one of the first people infected in the Netherlands. And she's been not only you know, dealing with long COVID with her work, but it's been affecting her health for a year now. So we go over that, we go over long COVID and uh, what we knew at the beginning, how it was being addressed at the beginning, what we know now, what she's personally experienced, uh, what she's, what information she's accrued from uh, talking about other people's symptoms and how long COVID has affected them. We talk about the general state of COVID-19 in the Netherlands past, present, and future. We talk about her various organizations like Containment New and uh, the Zero COVID Alliance. Overall, this was a very enlightening and fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed it, and I learned a lot from Vicky, and I, I hope you really enjoy this conversation as well. So here we go. Vicky Vandertocht. Hey, everyone. I am here with, and I hope I don't screw this up too much, Vicky Vandertocht. And yes. Vicky here has got herself involved with quite a wide array of issues involving the present pandemic. And Vicky, why don't you start off with what would have initially got you involved with the pandemic a year ago, your situation with having long COVID and being infected very early on in the pandemic and what you've had to endure with that. I think this is a very important topic to go over as I feel that throughout the entirety of the pandemic, especially early on, but certainly still now that long COVID is a vastly underreported issue. So if you can start off from the beginning of what happened with you there and uh, bring us up to speed to where that brings you now. Yes, I would love to. Yeah, so about a year ago, um, I think on the 25th of February, um, I got infected with COVID. And uh, back then I was only 28 years old. Um, and this was at a time where in most countries throughout the world, people were talking about COVID as if it was only infecting, infecting the elderly and it was only causing severe disease in the elderly. Uh, but there I was, 28 years old. Um, I was floored by this disease. Um, I have been on the couch basically for three months straight. 
um, I had pneumonia, I had a fever, um, I had all these neurological symptoms, uh, heart issues, uh, a rash over my whole upper body um, that nobody could really pinpoint what the type of rash actually was. Um, and at the same time, I saw that in my country, I'm from the Netherlands, that there really wasn't any testing being done. Um, well, I've been kind of following this virus uh, from the moment that it was reported that there was this outbreak in Wuhan. Um, so I was already pretty up to speed uh, about the severity of this virus and the potential of it becoming a pandemic. So when I knew that um, at the 27th of February, um, that the first patient was confirmed in the Netherlands, but at the same time, there wasn't any testing being done, uh, like all alarm bells went off. Um, I had this idea that in the Netherlands, we had a pretty, pretty well organized healthcare system. And I just assumed that they would be on top of things. Um, but back then, um, I actually didn't spend much time on social media. But for this, I felt that um, I should be uh, keeping up to date with what people throughout the country were saying and, and what they were experiencing regarding this virus. So what I saw when I went on Twitter uh, was that a lot of people were already sick back then. They were sick, they traveled to Italy, they traveled to Wuhan, and some of them just traveled throughout the country because <clears throat> we actually had a national holiday uh, during that week, it was Carnival. Um, and Carnival is being celebrated in gigantic groups that are celebrating throughout different cities and they, they really go from city to city to celebrate it for a week straight. And all these people came together during that first week. Um, so when I went on Twitter and I saw all these sick people, I was like, well, wait, are these people actually getting tested? Because this seems like it could be a real issue. We could have a real outbreak on our hands. But it turned out that we weren't actually testing people, only the people that just traveled to Wuhan. And mind you, this was already when the, the start of the first wave in Italy was already happening. Um, so I decided, I kind of took, took it upon myself to do a little digging. So I made a Twitter poll to see if, um, to see what the amount of people were that were sick at the moment, um, and if they had access to testing, if they traveled abroad, uh, what if, if they had been in, in contact with someone that tested positive uh, over the last week. Um, and I got about 400 responses on that. And at the same time, we had an international journalist um, that were that, um, that was living in the Netherlands at the time, um, and she was looking into the whole the whole way that our government was handling this pandemic to see if if there was anything being done at the moment. And Sorry, she what, saw this. Yeah. What uh, what uh, network or publication was she with? Uh, I don't think I, I should share that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, fair enough. Um, but yeah, she, she um, based on this poll, she decided to reach out to our local CDC, um, which is called REVM, to see how many tests uh, were actually done at that point. Um, well, at first, they didn't even respond to her, but then a couple weeks later, they reported that they only did, uh, had done 3,000 tests at that time. So that were people that 
felt sick and needed the first test, but also people that had been sick for a week or two and that has to, had to get tested again, and even some people that were tested three times. So 3,000 tests, I think it comes down to maybe 1,500 people who got tested back then, and that clearly wasn't enough based on the situation throughout the country. And really, that was the start of our first wave. Um, within a month after that, our hospitals got like overrun. It was, we, we barely managed. We got at this point where there was one ICU bed left. Uh, and that is only because there was already a lot of triage being done uh, to keep people out of the hospital. And from that point on out, of course, I was sick. So for me, it really stopped there for a little bit. Um, I, I really had to do everything to to recover uh, as well as I could. So <laughs> I wasn't able to walk during this time. Uh, I was basically just on the couch uh, trying to get myself up to even make food or to go to the toilet. But after these three months. Um, so your, your symptoms were so severe that they completely hindered your mobility like yes, that. Yes, yes. Uh, how, how long would you say that that particular symptom went on for initially where you, you know, somebody in your late 20s could hardly walk. How, how long do you think that went on for until it, it got to the point where you can, because I know you still have a whole bunch of fatigue issues and that's been persistent to varying degrees, but like how long did, did that last for until you could actually, you know, have some mobility without it being totally crippling? Yeah, so it was it was really bad for the first two months, um, and I don't necessarily think it was because of the fatigue. I just had all these weird inflammation uh, throughout my body and, and most of the time in my legs as well. And at the same time, um, I had pneumonia in, in both of my lungs. So basically with every step I took, um, I had this, uh, it just felt as if something was was touching my lungs I, I just got these weird jabs uh, throughout my body so for two months it was really bad and then the last month I tried like slowly but surely I managed to do some more steps to get out of the house and actually go for a walk well try to go for a walk it's not like I managed to actually get out of my street because <laughs> that was already too much but yeah, for, for three months, really, I've been out of it and, and completely like bedridden or couch ridden. <laughs> so yeah, pretty much all of March, April, May. Yeah. 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 And then um, after that time, well, really during that time, um, the only way I had to really uh, find out what the situation was in the Netherlands was by just reading the news, uh, watching the news, um, or keeping up to date through social media. And it was really evident from the start that the news wouldn't give enough information to give you a good idea of what was actually going on. Um, so pretty, pretty quickly, I, I figured out that Twitter would be a good way to, to keep up to date. And luckily, we had some people who were really, really outspoken about the chosen strategy because um, back in March when all of this started our prime minister just stated that this is just the flu 
Um, and then a couple weeks later, when we already had a huge influx of patients uh, being admitted to the hospital, um, he still kept saying that it only hit the elderly and like, you just like, if we, if we would all just not, um, uh, not shake hands anymore and, and wash our hands and keep a distance and it'll all be okay. But just anyone that has a sense of how to deal with infectious diseases knows, knows that that is not enough. Uh, we really have to do so much more. Uh, I mean, the, the basic thing that we should all be doing is at least wear a mask. Um, but in the Netherlands, mask wearing was being shunned, uh, and it really still is. I mean, by now, uh, some, of the, some of the advice on, on mask wearing has changed, um, but it's still not at the point where, where you need it to be. Yeah, so way back in, um, in March, when all of this started, um, of course, he said that this is just a flu. Um, my government was saying that it only hit the elderly, but at the same time, they said that everyone should get this virus. We were going to opt for a herd immunity strategy uh, because, well, uh, we cannot uh, actually contain this virus. Uh, there is no way to stop it. Uh, every they, they even stated that this is what every country is going to do. Um, of course, we know now that that is not actually true. But the people in the Netherlands believed it. Um, and so it resulted in this situation where people wouldn't necessarily do the things that they needed to do to protect themselves. They get, didn't get the, well, people under 60 uh, didn't get the sense that this was a disease that they had to protect themselves from. Um, with all the consequences of that. Uh, so I, I, I said before, wearing a mask was really shunned. Uh, we actually had our uh, CDC come out stating that masks are ineffective and therefore we, it would be ridiculous to, to implement a mask mandate um, because yeah, there is no evidence that suggests that face masks are actually effective to stop this virus. Of course, we know that that is not true. Uh, there is actually a lot of research on masks uh, that proves the effectivity. Um, so yeah, all of this, it, it was such a strange period to live through. Um, but like I said, uh, I went on Twitter and I was very happy to see that there were some people who really got that uh, the way that this was being handled in the Netherlands was just not okay and we needed a change. Um, so I saw some people who were already like talking with each other, um, sending out tweets how, for example, herd immunity is not the way to go um, with this disease, uh, how we should work on containment, how we should work on effective communication, um, how we should close the schools. Um, and well, it took some time for them to really organize into a group, uh, but then within, I think, two months, uh, Containment New was there. And Containment New is a uh, grassroots um, action group that has been fighting for containment of COVID-19 in the Netherlands ever since. Um, so once I actually regained some strength and recovered a little bit, I decided to become a member of Containment New. Um, back then, we were with three uh, core members. Uh, they were all just getting started. Um, we were trying to figure out how we should go about this. 
uh, but we did know that we had to make uh, a website. We had to give all the information that was not being shared by our government to the general public. Uh, we had to reach out to journalists to show them that what we were being told as a population was just like plain wrong. Um, so we decided to reach out to policymakers, to journalists. Uh, we tried to reach out to parents, to schools, to hospitals, um, because like this, this doesn't. This is not just about protecting the people around you. This is about protecting the people. Um, the frontline workers who are like in real danger of catching this disease if they don't um, implement the right measures to protect themselves. So, so at, example, at what point did uh, you and the initial members realize that a, a uh, containment and, and elimination strategy was the most viable way to go? That was really from the start. I mean, anyone, like I said, anyone that's ever read something about infectious diseases knows that you should not let infectious diseases just run through the population. I mean, it's, it's never been done with a disease of this severity. Um, so for example, we have the flu going around. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the flu. Um, but that is really different from how countries have handled MERS or SARS or Ebola. Like everyone, every single person that has ever worked with these diseases knows that, know the, the type of measures that you should take to just contain it, bring it to a low amount of numbers, trace every single case until you get to zero. That is the only way. Um, and aside from that, about every country around the world has made a pandemic plan. So they all prepared for a situation like this. But when, when COVID actually hit, they decided not to go for the pandemic plan, but instead they used the influenza plan. And that is just, yeah, like actively deciding on letting it run through the population. It's a decision. It, it's not like they didn't have another choice. They just decided not to go with the pandemic plan. So that is such a, yeah. Yeah, and uh, what would you think was, uh, particularly with, with your government, was um, motivating them to uh, take that particular position of not looking to take the virus so seriously, as you mentioned, uh, is what occurred with SARS? and Ebola? Um, I think it is mostly because they didn't see all the risks at that time. They didn't see the severity. And of course, that is, that is all possible with, with, with how the first wave went. Uh, I mean, a lot of young people were being kept out of the hospital, um, as was I. Um, I, I, when I called my doctor and then the emergency room multiple times, I got told that I should only call them back once I get to a point where I wasn't able to speak a full sentence without gasping for air. Like these are the things that people my age got told by their GPs, even by the hospitals if they reached them just because they couldn't breathe anymore. Um, and so if all these people are triaged out of the hospital, 
that means that you'll only end up with the the elderly or people with underlying conditions and it's really really easy um to then think that these are the only people that are being hit hard um, at the same time i just have to say as well that in the netherlands we have had um a lot of like um, infectious diseases before uh, we have had swine flu uh, q fever um, we have a lot of mass farming here um, so animal farming uh, so therefore we yeah there's a lot of zoonotic diseases in the netherlands uh, and i can only assume with the way it's still going that we will have many more uh, but because of that um, that also means that when there's an outbreak of a zoonotic disease um, i feel like they have a default setting for it so for example with q fever we had a small outbreak of that as well uh, but then came the aftercare Whoa. Uh, what's what's that exactly? Um, yeah, they just call it Q fever here. I actually don't know what the English um, name for it would be. I think it would be Q fever as well. Okay. Well, when, when did uh, when did that outbreak uh, occur? Um, I think it was in two thousand eight. Uh, but don't pin me on that. No, okay. No, fair enough. Interesting. Oh, carry on. <laughs> but yeah, that actually hit a couple thousand people, um, and. From that disease, um, there were also a lot of people with long-term symptoms. And for that, like ever since then, I mean, as a patient, I've been in contact with a lot of the organizations that handled the Q fever back then. Um, and also with the patients that, that got infected with this disease. And they actually mentioned that they, since then, like they got some help, they got some care, but not really enough. Um, and we really see the same happening now. So it's really downplaying. Um, it's kind of like, oh, we've seen this before. We know how to handle that. It's a little bit of an arrogant way of looking at it, um, in my opinion. Yeah. So with with that, with, with caring for, for the, the sufferers, I guess, particularly within the, the Netherlands then. So a few things. So you you mentioned that the prime minister um had or was putting out the the canard that this was just uniform with the flu and uh, then the the misinformation or disinformation on masks uh, which was uh, very similar in in my country and uh, as well as many others early on and then the willingness uh, to care for those who are, uh, inflicted with this disease. At what point throughout last year did some of these things modify? Because I'm, I'm assuming uh, the prime minister didn't try to keep persuading the public forever that this was just the flu. You know that that would be too preposterous, um, even for him. And I would. And at what point did the the mask narrative sort of change? Because that seemed to happen everywhere. Or no, almost everywhere was that you know, you know tearing people away from masks, and then some places almost turned on a dime that you know, you know masks are good, but then at the same time you know heaven forbid somebody you know try to try to uh, be specific as, as to to what mask, um, and then uh, what also uh, changed if anything 
for the care of of uh, everybody suffering with uh, this long term chronic uh, ailment, uh, or or has anything really changed much at all? Because from what you said there, um, in the spring, it was just like you pretty much had to be on death's door before they they cared about you at all. Yeah. Um... Yeah, unfortunately, it really was that way. And, and that really uh, stayed for for a long time. Um, I actually still had people reach out to me in September and October, people my age um, that heard exactly the same things. Um, so, and I fear that it is still the same at this moment uh, because there is still triage happening in the hospitals. I mean, we're at the beginning of our third wave and it's probably going to be a big one. Uh, but in terms of masks, um, uh, yeah, that, this is this is a difficult topic. Um, so what happened in the Netherlands is that our CDC, uh, they they didn't really change the whole narrative around masks. Like they didn't make any statements to reverse the things they said before. Uh, the change really came uh, from our public transport sector. Um, because we have a lot, like a very well-run public transport system in the Netherlands. Uh, you, very, you sure do. Yeah, we have a very tiny country. We have a lot of roads and people really travel through the throughout the country uh, day in, day out just to get to work. So a lot of people uh, take the trains for work, take the bus for work. Um, but these people that work in public transport, they didn't feel safe. Uh, they didn't feel that their employees were safe. Uh, so they asked for a mask mandate only in public transport. And this happened in June, if I'm correct. Um, but even then, like people had to wear them, but it wasn't like they took it that seriously because at the same time, we had RVM stating, well, they don't work. So people had to wear them, but even then it was quite a struggle. I mean, people wore them under chin, uh, they wore them uh, under their nose, you know, and, and some people were still ignoring it. And at the same time, I mean, you can implement all the measures you want, but if there's no enforcement, yeah, like, what will actually make you put on that mask then? Um, and it really seemed, and, and really up until now, that a lot of people still don't feel like wearing these masks, not even in public transport. Uh, so that was the first um, kind of change in, in the, the mask debate, and that went on for a lot more months. Uh, and it actually took until December for the government to make a statement on masks. Uh, so in December, they came out stating that masks are now um, obligatory in all public spaces. Uh, but even then, I mean, you can, you can kind of guess what these spaces are. I mean, stores and, and so on. But you would assume that this also would be the case for hospitals or for elderly homes. Well, it turns out that's not necessarily the case uh, because at the same time in the, the mask wearing policy, they stated that if people have to wear the mask for more than eight hours a day, if they're an employee, they're exempted from the rule. So that means that if someone works in a hospital and they have an eight hour shift, they don't have to wear a mask. So that really results in a situation that even last week, 
uh, my partner at Containment Nu, Michael Block, um, he uh, had to go to the hospital. And even in that hospital, even in February, people were still wearing face shields. Some people weren't even wearing anything. Employees, that is. Incredible. And, yeah, and, and I, I said before, uh, we have reached out to schools. We have reached out to elderly homes, to hospitals, just to give them the right information, just stating, like, we have all the research here. We can send it to you. Um, we know that people need to wear masks. Like, we know that face shields will not protect you against this virus because this virus is airborne. But at the same time, our CDC is still ignoring that this virus is airborne. They, they entirely? Actually, well, <laughs> not entirely. That's the thing that makes it even worse in this case. Uh, the head of the REVM, Jaap van Dussel, actually came out with a statement saying, well, it may be airborne, but if we would say that it is, that means that the bars and restaurants would never be able to open during this pandemic. So it's kind of like an admission, but at the same time, he doesn't want to state that it's true. And that is still the case at this very moment. So we have people that... Um, so so they're, they're sort of admitting that, that there is something there, but we just don't want to do anything about it. Yeah, yeah, and kind of like the same with masks. So we still have like the head of the CDC, he never came out stating, well, masks are very effective. And if you wear this mask, you will be, uh, you will get this amount of protection. Like none of that. There is no communication about that. But at the same time, our government decided to come out with a statement saying that we now have to wear them in public spaces. So it's really like as, as a, a citizen that is not following all these news or all these statements, it is really confusing to figure out like, what is it? Like, <laughs> what is the truth here? Um, and that is the situation that we're in right now that a lot of people just still don't know like, what is the truth of it all? Yeah, unfortunately that confusion through in part mistrust of the public, not, not willing to give all the information out and then also having various contradictory information over a period of time is unfortunately a situation not entirely contained within the Netherlands. It has just become a, you know, a year-long international crisis, but yeah, it, it seems that it is particularly severe there. Yeah, yeah, I, I, it really is. And of course, like, I don't, I don't like to draw comparisons between countries. I don't think it does any good. I agree, um, yeah. But yeah, in, in terms of what the situation is here, um, I can only say that the amount of misinformation has come to, to such a high point that people are at the same time, they are experiencing this COVID fatigue. They don't want to hear anymore, but at the same time, they're not actually informed to a point where they can protect themselves. Because all of this, like at the same time, you have people that, would really like to just stick to all the rules. Um, so they go on the website by REVM, they look through all the measures just so they know how to protect themselves. But then these people get infected and they are just so confused. Like how, how did I get infected? I kept my distance. I, um, I didn't, I, I washed my hands. I, I didn't shake hands with anyone. But yeah, like if you don't wear that mask, if 
you still spend time indoors with with large groups of people yeah you will get infected but to me it's just so heartbreaking that that in particular there are people that want to do that want to do well that want to adhere to all these measures yeah it, it is not enough to protect them so is this what uh, you and containment knew where we're trying to really reverse yeah, it's, it's what we try to reverse. Well, well, when you put it that way, of course, we try to reverse it. We never actually had the idea that we, um, as a group, like we're only a small uh, action group, uh, we never expected us to make this full change, uh, however great it would be if we got everyone on board with it. But we just tried to do what we could. So we had all the data, uh, we had a lot of studies. So for example, studies on uh, transmission in kids, that's an also, uh, also another point of misinformation by my government. Um, so for the longest time, um, they kept up the idea that kids do not transmit this virus. And if they do, it's only kids transmitting to other kids and parents to parents and teachers to teachers. But at the same time, it turns out that the study that they used as a basis for these claims was done in lockdown. And it was done at the time where only people in uh, the healthcare sector were being tested. So you kind of see probably where I'm going with this. That means that the kid is never the index patient. It means that the, the virus got into the home by either the mom or the dad and they probably gave it to the kid. And like, this is not the normal situation to figure out if there's transmission between kids. This is not a study that is well done. But unfortunately, this study went all over the world. It is being used as a basis for multiple countries, even in the US. So- And still to this day? Um, I don't know if it's still to this day in the US. Um, in the Netherlands, well, that's a whole other story altogether. I'll get to that. Yeah, um, yeah. There, there's there's quite a a, a tale with, with with that there that involves you for sure. Yeah, yeah. So with the schools in particular, um, I mean, we started out just um, making an info kit. So a little flyer with all the information so that kids transmit it, that we should have proper ventilation in schools, that there should be proper testing of kids, not just kids tw uh, 12 and over, like all different ages, because they all go to this school and they can all transmit this virus. Um, also, we had um, a segment in that um, about the disease in kids, not just the initial disease, but also long-term effects that kids can suffer from. Um, and uh, we just had all our contact info, like if you want any help, if you are a concerned parent or you are a teacher and you want to make your school a, a little more safe, just reach out to us and we can help you with this. Uh, so we put this on our website and uh, we just send out to all our followers and like a newsletter uh, as well. Like, if you want these flyers, just reach out to us and we will send them to you. And we had, we, we send out a couple thousand flyers all over the country. Um, and a lot of parents um, try to just have a conversation with the school leaders to see what was possible. But at the same time, there was so much misinformation doing the rounds that a lot of parents just didn't see any danger in, in these open schools. 
basically without measures. Um, so that resulted in a situation that the parents who did know, they wanted to keep their kids at home. They just wanted to protect our kids. Um, and in some cases also because they are in a high risk group or their kid is. So they have underlying conditions of some sort. Uh, but in the Netherlands, we have mandatory in-school education. So that means that you're not allowed as a parent to keep your kid home from school. You can actually get prosecuted for that. And you would say, you would think that during a pandemic, this mandatory education would be suspended. But unfortunately, that wasn't true. So it resulted in a situation where the parents just were so worried. They saw the, the cases go up in their area or they got letters from the school saying that uh, a teacher got sick or even like a teacher died. And they still had to send their kids to school and they just weren't comfortable with that. So they decided to keep them at home. Um, and then um, as a platform that was very vocal about all this, we started getting all these messages from parents saying like, uh, we have been reported for child abusers. Um, we have had the attendance officer uh, really threatening with prosecuting us. Um, or we have an attendance officer that says that they will report us um, if, if we don't send our kids back the next week. And they okay. were just terrified. And what would this prosecution entail? Like what would uh, these, these, these parents, or well, essentially the, the families, uh, be having to face if they were to be thrown into such prosecution? Oh, what, what the exact... Um reason for prosecution would be i would have to look up oh no no statement. sorry like 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 what 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 is the the what are the, the possible um punishments or, or sentences that they they might have that they might be facing um, if they at didn't first yeah at, at first there are fines um but of course this all goes from bad to worse so like i said um it starts off with a fine for uh, keeping your kid out of school uh, but it can go all the way up to uh, them making claims about you as a parent abusing your kid just for keeping them at home. I mean, that's a whole different matter altogether. Um, so we we received all these messages and we just, we got sick to our stomachs, really. Um, we wanted to help, like, we wanted to help so bad, like we tried to help uh, on so many different aspects of this crisis, but this was really a tangible thing that, that we could make a change in. Uh, so we decided to reach out to basically every lawyer throughout the country to see who was willing to take on a legal case against the state for safer schools. Um, uh, basically, it turned out that most of the lawyers aren't willing to go against the state, but luckily for us, the best lawyers of our country did. Uh, so we managed to get the lawyers who are kind, kind of like internationally famous for winning the Urgenda case, so a climate case in the Netherlands, uh, and they were really happy to take this on. Uh, so we decided to uh, start a, a suit against our state, uh, and we had three demands. Uh, our first demand was um, the removal of misinformation from uh, the government website and the CDC's website about kids not transmitting this virus and then never getting sick from it. 
Um, the second thing we ask for is that kids should wear masks in schools, and if that's not possible, social distancing, so one or the other. Uh, because at that point, <laughs> there was just so little information uh, that we didn't feel that we could ask for both. Um, and then the third thing was that we asked for a temporary suspension of the mandatory education. Well, and kind of fast forward one and a half month, um, it took some time for the state to respond to it to get a court date. Um, and then when the, the court date, I just, I just feel like sharing this story because it's so ridiculous. Uh, and we just talked about um, the, the whole denying of aerosol transmission. So what that means in practice is that in the Netherlands, if you walk through a, a, a public space, you have to wear a mask. Once you sit, you can take it off. So in the courthouse, I well, now- if it's, it's, a, it's a virus. It's, it's, it's not that mean. It's going to leave you alone while you're sitting down. Yeah, but if you sit, you don't spread. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so um, I, as a high-risk patient, because um, I have to say, my partner at Containment New decided to become a, a COVID refugee. He actually fled to Italy because the schools were so much safer over there. But that meant that I now had to do the court case. But I, at the same time, I'm a long COVID patient and now a high-risk patient. Right. Yeah, so um, to, the, to the courthouse, <laughs> I was sitting there in my, uh, my KN95, uh, being really terrified of get, getting reinfected. And there everyone was, okay, can everybody sit down? You can take off your masks now. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> and the judge just looks at me like, oh, God. you're not going to take off your mask? And I'm like, hell no. <laughs> um, yeah, good for you. Yeah, yeah, really happy I didn't do that. <laughs> I didn't succumb to the wishes of the judge. Uh, <laughs> it's just it's just insane. It's just you're watching the, the, this 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 spectacle in action. It's just it's just people being expected to live out some fairy tale. It's right. It's incredible. Right. Um, well, we had the court case. Uh, we got a lot of weird reactions from the state. So, for example, we really stuck to WHO guidelines. Like our our demand was really like, just stick with the WHO guidelines. Why why are our guidelines for so many different aspects of this crisis so different from what the WHO states that we should do? Um, and luckily, the judge um, thought the same thing. Like. This, the state lawyer couldn't come up with any good arguments as to why we weren't following these guidelines. Um, and at the same time, he stated, well, yeah, REVM, our CDC, is a, a research institute and they should be seen as um, a higher power that we should listen to. But at the same time, so is the WHO. So um, after the court case, um, he gave, we, we get, got a, preliminary verdict that really stated that the, the state lawyer couldn't come up with sufficient arguments um, to, to kind of prove to us um, or to give us a reason why the Netherlands wasn't following these WHO guidelines. So we had a follow-up uh, to this whole lawsuit. Uh, at the same time in this verdict, um, before the court case happened, uh, a part of the misinformation was already removed from the website. Uh, so in um, 
after talking it over with our lawyers, we decided to drop that demand. So really the two things that were that were left was the mandatory education and um, and the masks or, or social distancing. Um, now comes the fun part. Um, so eventually at the end of January, we got the final verdict. And the verdict basically stated that um, we, even though the state wasn't able to really prove or come up with arguments why we shouldn't be following the WHO guidelines, they didn't have the power to say that that RVM was wrong for saying the things they did. Because like, who is a judge to say that a CDC is wrong? Mm -hmm. um, we should kind of give them the benefit of the doubt. And therefore our demand was rejected. And, and at the same time, he said that for the mandatory education, well, that's a whole matter altogether. Uh, because he actually didn't have the power, the, the legal power to suspend his mandatory education, but he felt it was his, his duty to write a paragraph in the verdict stating that, well, we are in a pandemic and it would be really insensitive for attendance officers um, to actually prosecute parents during a pandemic just um, because they want to keep their kids safe. Uh, like that shouldn't be the way that this is handled. So uh, with this paragraph, he really did us um, a huge favor because that is then used by our lawyers to write up a document that parents could use to just have a conversation with their schools, with attendance officers to get them off their backs. And because of this verdict, mandatory education is now suspended. We were right uh, with all these claims uh, and in the end, it worked out so well, uh, and we now we we get so many um, like grateful messages from parents that they are just so grateful that they now have the option to just keep their kids safe. What was so, yeah. the what what was the uh, Dutch press coverage like after you guys managed to to end this ridiculous policy of, of having mandatory school attendance during during the pandemic? <laughs> That's the thing. By the time that all of this happened, there were a lot of other things going on in the country. Uh, so we kind of got snowed under by other news. Uh, and also, we didn't exactly win. Um, if you look at the, the website with like the verdicts that are being published, um, it, it states that we didn't win. So you really have to look into like what was actually being said to see that we actually had a lot of wins. Um, so not the coverage that we were hoping for, um, but at the same time during this whole process, like our lawyer got interviewed by one of the biggest talk shows um, in the country. Uh, it got picked up by so many papers, um, but this was all before uh, the actual court case. Oh, okay. So, so leading up to the court cases, it was yeah. getting some, some good press, but then after it kind of, kind of fizzled. Yeah. Because um, also like, I just have to say uh, in the end, we are still an action group and the media is not really keen on reporting on that. Uh, they, they still aren't, even though literally everything we said over the last year has turned out to be true. 
So yeah, we're kind of being shunned by the media, uh, but that's okay. I mean, we still make it. We still get our wins, though. Yeah, well, that that is the key point. No, I I think that applies a lot of places. It, people trying to get certain messages out uh, towards um, different strategies, different measures, uh, different ways of looking at the pandemic, and it's sort of stays as, as very esoteric in uh, whatever region they're in. But the key point is there is that you you guys were trying to make this better for all the families in your country that had you know these very serious concerns and you know one way or another you more or less got got that main component accomplished making sure that they can make their own decisions for uh what is the best for their family's health without that being imposed upon them by the government so unfairly yeah exactly yeah, and I say, like, we, we got support by concerned parents. Well, I have to say, it's not just concerned parents. We had uh, parents um, of kids who were actually struggling with long COVID. Um, they already got this disease. They knew that this was that this was serious. And they also felt this need to just protect each and every single around them from having this, this same fate. And that, that is really one point uh, where we booked a lot of wins. I mean, we, we have managed to get in contact with a lot of journalists throughout the country. And a lot of these stories um, that started out as, as anecdotal because there's not much research into long COVID being done in the Netherlands. Um, if I'm correct, not any study at the moment. Uh, so you can only imagine that having a kid with long COVID is one of the, one of the most dif difficult situations where you can be in. Um, I mean, I already had issues with getting to the hospital because nobody was willing to see me because I was a 28-year-old and I should be healthy. So can you imagine what it's like if you have a three-year-old or a six-year-old with these same types of symptoms. Like we actually talked to parents that were being sent away while their kid was having palpitations and having fever for months on end. Uh, we talked to parents that their kid had hearing issues. Um, like all of this is just heartbreaking. And, and what we managed to do with this journalist is just get these stories out there. Um, so this is a little bit about containment new, but at the same time, we have other groups active in the Netherlands. Uh, so because we organized so early on, um, we really saw the same happening and we empowered others to do the same. So we have another group, Schole um, Veilig, from Safe Schools. Um, they, um, they are really a, a parent-led advocacy group for safer schools or for proper safety measures in schools. Um, but they were already active for a while um, and the schools were reopening without adequate measures. So we already knew that there were probably going to be a lot of outbreaks in schools uh, over the next couple of months. So uh, some of the parents, they decided to bond together and set up a school's hotline. Um, so this was in collaboration with a data company um, they set up this website where parents, um, when they received a letter from their, their kid's school uh, that someone tested positive or uh, there was an outbreak, 
uh, they could enter this, this letter, um, they could just send, um, fill out how many cases there were, uh, and it would show up on a map, and it would be, um, uh, we would get like a, a full report of the amount of cases and which schools and where the outbreaks were. Um, because really our minist Ministry of Education neglected to do so. So with this school safe and the school's hotline group, uh, we really have this, um, this great collaboration and we can all really add to each other's messaging. We can uh, collaborate on certain topics. So what we, um, what we did throughout that time is just reach out to people um, to parents or kids who got sick themselves. Um, we, we managed to partner up uh, the people who, who had the kids with long COVID with different types of journalists and different talk shows just to make sure that the, the stories were being told. Um, because like you can try all you want to, to advocate for a different strategy but if even the people don't see the danger, if they don't know these stories, uh, they won't be on board with it. So that is really uh, what it's like at the moment, slowly but surely the, the public perception of COVID is changing. And that is really due to all these stories that are coming out now. And in large part, I think that is because of all the groups that are active in the Netherlands that have been fighting throughout this last year. Well, on that topic of groups, you, you do have uh, quite the other, well, not sure if you could call it a group or a umbrella or a conglomeration of sorts, but uh, tell me about Zero COVID Alliance and how you got that going and what precisely that is and, and how that's coming along. Because that, that's quite a, a, a you know, as if, as if you, you haven't had enough on the go. <laughs> and as and as if you hadn't done enough in the year, like we we haven't even brought up that yet. So, please uh, tell tell me how how that all got started. Yeah, would love to. Um, so for that, I really have to rewind a couple of months. Um, in the beginning, uh, so I think this was back in July. Uh, I was just a part of Containment New. Um, and there were some groups in other countries, uh, one in the UK and one in Sweden, uh, that were really outspoken about what was going on in their countries. And I don't know if you know this, but Johnson um, also came out stating that they were going to go for herd immunity. And also the, the Swedish state epidemiologist, Anders Tegnell, he said the same thing. Everyone was supposed to get it. Um, this was just a flu. Um, uh, you shouldn't be wearing masks, like so on, so on. So of course, and it's it's almost ironic, but like, of course, these people in these countries, they all bonded together. Um, like they were the first to do that. Um, and we already um, reached out to them. Like we, we shared some conversations with them, just kind of share experiences. And we were all in the same situation. And that is like, yeah, outright, panic, really. Um, and, and we were really um, yeah, outspoken about how we needed a change in strategy. But like, if, if the situation in your country doesn't allow for, for that debate to be even held, yeah, what do you do then? 
So I decided, well, we need to amplify our voices. We need to be heard internationally because if it's not going to come from the inside, it has to come from the outside. And of course, in, in Europe, that's that's a lot easier because we have this dynamic of, of some countries being like more powerful and other countries uh, maybe much more willing to follow their example. Um, so I decided, well, if, if nobody else is going to do it, uh, I'll just set up this alliance. So we felt, well, the Zero COVID Alliance would be the right name for it. And I just decided to do it. Um, that was in the same month I also became a member of ncoronavirus.org. And in ncoronavirus, uh, I mean, they're very active in the US. Uh, they had been reporting on, on how the situation was in different countries, uh, but they really weren't really active on the whole advocacy in different countries yet. Um, and I really felt like there was a need to uh, to have a space for all these groups for all their um, all the things that they're working on um, to yeah like I said to amplify the voices and to help them as well uh, because it's not just the existing groups there are also so many people who saw that what we were doing as containment new and that reached out to us from all over the world like can you help us we need the same especially with the lawsuit so many people from different countries just showed up in our DMs saying, can you help us with a lawsuit in our country? We were like, well, we would be really horrible people if we wouldn't try to do that. Um, so yeah, we decided to set up a website, to set up our own uh, type of communication and to just um, have this um, mindset of if anyone reaches out to us um, with a, a call for help, we will help them in whatever way we can. Uh, so it started out really small. We were just the three of us, um, the, the three groups that is. So with, uh, with, with Safe Sweden and, and a group in the UK. Um, and from that point on out, we saw all these groups popping up online. Uh, so we had Wellenbrecher from Germany, uh, we saw Make Good Together in the US, um, and then we had a Zero COVID UK, and it, it just kept growing and growing, and now it's grown to this point where, um, don't, don't pin me on this, but I think we have 29 partners now in oh, wow. about 15 different countries. Yeah, it's quite amazing. And, and the good part about all of this is that a lot of people seem to think that the Zero COVID Alliance, maybe it's because of the name, they all seem to think that we're just advocating for a change in strategy. But that is so far from the truth. Um, what we do as an alliance is help people with whatever they, they are working on. I mean, some some groups just want us to help with writing, um, writing guidelines for schools. Uh, some groups reach out to us because they, um, they have PPE shortages and they need our help with just making sure that they get the proper PPE or they get the funding for PPE. Um, so we try to help them with that. Um, we also now have some long COVID groups in the Alliance. So we work with long COVID SOS. Uh, with long COVID kids, the long COVID Italy, and the COVID persistente in Spain. And these groups, like, they are not just advocacy groups, they are actively initiating studies into long COVID. They are trying to 
get the patients, the, the recognition, the, the, the research and the care that they need. And that is so necessary at the moment um, because well, I, I really didn't get into it um, in this conversation um, up until now, but yeah, long COVID research has been lacking. Um, there's a lot of research into what COVID does, the initial disease, uh, but in terms of what it does in the long term, that is a whole different matter altogether. So we now have some, some clues about what is going on. Um, there's talks about it being, being an, um, an autoimmune disease. There's talks about uh, how uh, hormone levels uh, play a part in it, how vaccines can maybe be a solution to it. Uh, there's talks about uh, organ damage. Hey, we had to step away for a second, but uh, Vicky, we were talking about long COVID and uh, what people are having to endure with that uh, later on and uh, what's being discovered about it. So continue on with uh, what is being found out over the last few months with long COVID and as well to really what you've had to endure personally. Because um, I, 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 I would guess maybe I'm off here, but I think it's quite a notable majority of the population, at least in my neck of the woods, that really have absolutely no idea and, and not out of, not out of any uh, willful aversion to the matter, but just how underreported it is and, and how unexpected they would find it. So what, what's the state of, of uh, what's known about long COVID now? And what are you having to deal with? And, and as well, too, uh, like you, you mentioned, some of the, the children that you hear from, I'm not sure if it was from them directly or from their parents, and uh, some of the other people, uh, some of the other long COVID sufferers that you've been in contact with and what they've had to deal with specifically. Yeah, so long COVID um, to me is really the biggest misconception of this whole crisis. Um, a lot of people seem to think that younger people, and with younger, like younger in this case means everyone under 60 basically, uh, they seem to think that these people don't get severe disease and even if they do, it is only for a couple of weeks and then they'll recover and they'll go back to normal. Yeah, just, just on that point real quick, that's one thing that has just driven me nuts over the course of this year is that everything's become so dichotomous. It's either you're, you're uh, sick or you've recovered. I'm a dear listener, you can't see my quotation fingers there. But, uh, um, and it, that, that's really led to this misconception that you know, once you're, you're not transmitting, then you've recovered and just, just that manipulation of language uh, moves this concept into people's mind that, oh, you're not transmissible. You know, maybe you're going to be coughing for a couple more weeks, but you're, you're, you're fine. Um, yeah. So it, it's, 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 it's really amazing how, how that it, still at this point in time is still being pushed. Yes, exactly. Um, and it's, it's been the most heartbreaking thing to, have to watch happening. Um, so my whole experience with long COVID has been really a roller coaster. 
So when I got sick myself and I continued to experience symptoms, I didn't know at all what was happening to me. Uh, no one was talking about it, especially not in the Netherlands. I really had to look up like if there were other people who still had symptoms after a couple of weeks, even that I think it was at, at six weeks uh, that I really started getting worried because I wasn't recovering. Um, and it took until July, so about three and a half, three and a half months for me to eventually get connected with um, an epidemiologist here in the Netherlands. And he was the first one that reached out to me and it was because I sent out a thread on Twitter. Uh, so I just read up um, a, a couple of tweets about how um, really what my experience with COVID had been. So I said, well, I am only a 28 year old. I got sick in March, um, but to this day, I still experience palpitations, neurological sim symptoms. I still have trouble breathing. Um, so I, I kind of listed all the symptoms that I was experiencing. Um, and at the same time, um, I don't know if, if you know this, but uh, in a lot of countries, um, people only end up in the official statistics if they are admitted to the hospital uh, within 28 days after being tested positive, and they only are listed as a COVID death if they die within 28 days after a positive test. So I stated in, the, in these tweets that, well, if I die now, or if I end up in the hospital, it would not be right uh, to not make the link with COVID because I never had these symptoms before. Um, so really pointing out the, the flaw in, in that whole way of looking at it. And based on that, uh, an epidemiologist reached out to me and said he wanted to talk to me about my long-term symptoms. And that was the first conversation I had where someone took my symptoms seriously. Uh, it, was, it was just, to me, it was really the the confirmation I needed because like if you're just dealing with all these symptoms and nobody's talking about it and people are kind of being dismissive about COVID even having the ability of causing long-term symptoms, like you start to think that you're going mad. Um, so this conversation, I mean, this this epidemiologist, he worked with, with many different um, viral diseases before. He could really explain to me how we knew certain things, but uh, we weren't really sure about other things just yet. So for example, the neurological symptoms that we weren't sure just yet if COVID actually affected the brain, if it damaged the brain, um, or if it was just an immune response. Um, the same goes for the different type of symptoms that I experienced with my heart. So I've been having palpitations for months, months and months and months. Um, it didn't start at the first month. I think it started in May, um, April or May. Um, and like, I didn't know, like, is my heart actually damaged or is this just the disease kind of making sure that my heart is playing up? Like there seemed to be a difference between the two. Um, so from this whole conversation, <laughs> I think this lasted about two hours maybe. Um, because there was just so much to explore. 
and and he was also just very interested in in my personal situation uh, because it was all new to him and it was not being talked about in the Netherlands and, and based on that um, I decided to um, that that we just had to do a call for more research. Uh, we had to make sure that these people like me um, who were experiencing long-term symptoms, that they had a place to go, that there was a support group, uh, there were organizations that were working on this, that were offering the right type of care. Um, so I reached out to different types of organizations. So the Lung Fund, uh, the Heart Foundation, uh, just to see like, is is there any research being done at the moment? Are they collaborating on this? Because mind you, back then they were talking about COVID as if it was just affecting the lungs. And the type of symptoms that I was experiencing, they went far beyond just like affecting my lungs. Um, well, it turned out with this whole round of calls that I did that they weren't really collaborating. And also there wasn't one place where, for example, GPs could go to to just see the latest research. Uh, and that to me was just astounding because I was following this day in, day out, just because of my personal situation and to figure out what was going on with me. But if GPs didn't have this access, then how would they know? Like they are, they are probably working full time. I can only assume that they do not spend every waking hour that they're not working on looking into the research that is being published, and as that is all international research. So um, from that point on out, I decided to reach out to my Ministry of Health um, to reach out to different patients to kind of hear their stories and their experience with this disease. And it really dawned on me that this can hit everyone. It can hit people my age, younger, older, every type of age. And, and they all have somewhat similar symptoms. Some are also very different. Um, so for example, some people get really severe pneumonia and other people get severe rashes over their whole body but never actually get pneumonia. Uh, there are a lot of people that are reporting heart issues and neurological issues. Um, some people get thrombosis. Um, we hear of kidney failure. Uh, there, there's just so much to unpack in terms of what COVID does, but there's really a list that almost all patients are reporting um, that contains brain fog, um, COVID fatigue, so uh, really chronic fatigue, uh, I, should, I should call it. Um, there's loss of, loss of taste, uh, loss of smell, uh, severe headaches. Um, a lot of people have issues with inflammation as well, uh, so do I. Um, and that is just, that is the weird thing about COVID. It, it really comes in waves. So that is something that basically everyone is reporting. It is not a linear disease. Um, I've had waves of feeling better. I actually had a month where I almost felt completely better and I decided to pick up my life again. And then I had a severe relapse and I ended up on the couch for another couple of months again after that. Um, and it just shows, it really showed me that there is such a need for advocacy for these patients. Like, 
if in the Netherlands I can already not get this type of care, and, and like I said before, I really, um, I really thought that the healthcare system in the Netherlands was, was great before this. Um, so I, I was just thinking about how, how all of this would be in other countries. Like I know, for example, in the U.S., that the healthcare system, well, it, it really, there's, there's room for improvement. So just thinking of that. You're, you're, you're so charitable in your terms. <laughs> yeah. But with that, I just, I could only imagine like how, how big this need would be in other countries. So I decided to just also with the Zero COVID Alliance to reach out to all these countries to see what is being done over there. Um, if there are advocacy groups, what the type of care is, uh, if there's research being done, uh, and, and what type of research. Uh, so, for example, one thing that a lot of patients um, have been very, um, yeah, almost angry about is that the type of symptoms that we have and the type of damage, you can actually find it with the right type of examinations. But a lot of countries don't want to do these examinations. So people are being turned away at the hospitals. They're not being taken seriously. And this is really a historical thing. But once uh, there's a disease, once you're suffering from a disease that is not easy to explain, um, GPs and, and, and other doctors, they have a way of saying it is psychosomatic. So it's all in your head. So this is really how 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 common would you say that last point is that that uh, people who are who are contending with this hear uh, that 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 this is just an issue that uh, is going on in your head for long COVID in particular, you mean? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Oh, I, I wouldn't be able to name a percentage, but in the first couple of months, it really was the majority of people that I spoke with. I see. And did you uh, did you have that happen to you in particular? Talk to some physician, and then they tell you yeah. that maybe this is just in your head. Like a, this is a, a a rather spectacular moment. So maybe you're just stressed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So really, the worst thing, the worst experience with with healthcare I had in the Netherlands uh, was when I had a relapse, and I ended up in the emergency room again. Um. And, and this was already ever uh, after having multiple appointments with my GP. Um, this was after being ended up at the emergency room multiple times. Um, so I was there. I had another round of pneumonia. Uh, and I came into the office. And the first thing the doctor told me was, well, I see in your medical record that you recently lost your dad. That must be a, quite a reason for stress. I'm sure that's the cause of all your symptoms. And I was just floored. Like, how, how without examining me, how dare you say such a thing? Like, and still now, when I think of it, it just makes me so angry because I, I, I'm not afraid to speak up about these things, but I can just imagine how other people would respond to that as well. Like I already knew at that point, I knew enough about this disease to not let it get to me. I knew a lot of people that 
that actually reached out to me because they had a similar experience. So I kind of already braced myself for it. But just knowing that this is how you are being treated when you're in the emergency room, that is just horrible. And, and it lacks any sort of rigor. Like just uh, find one one issue and then hand wave it away. That oh well, well maybe this is it. And then just just expect the the patient to have to accept that. Just that 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 flippant explanation. Before you you were you were mentioning too about these waves, um, and and you mentioned that there was there was almost this what made sound like a an eye of the hurricane sort of moment where everything seemed to clear and you're feeling better and maybe you had the the idea that that this this was the the, the conclusion of this. Um, so what was it like when this new wave came on and what made it different than, than what happened before? And is there really an acute similarity between these waves from the, the stories that you heard from the, the other people that you've been interacting with? Um, yeah, I think it boils down to, uh, um, how do they call it? Post, post-extractionalism? Did I say it correct now? I really hope so. So yeah, it, it comes down we'll, to- We'll that. go with that. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it comes down to that Yes, most people actually report that after the initial illness, um, once that is kind of cleared from your body, they all feel a little better for a while. But in this, this uh, period, your body is still actively trying to get rid of this virus. So when you actually go out and, and you resume life as normal, and you put yourself in these situations where you may get like really tired because you stay out too late or you drink something or you name it, like anything that may have a negative effect on your body. Um, your uh, resistance will get too low and the virus will actually have like all the, like the optimal um, conditions to then kind of hit again. And I feel like that, that, like, this is not a scientific statement, by the way, but this is how I perceived it. Um, so during that time, when I felt a little better, I actually went out for walks. So I one time went out for a walk for an hour. Um, and that was really more than I had been able to walk for months. Because like I said, for a couple of months, I wasn't even able to get to the end of my street. Um, or even off the couch, for that matter. Um, so when I was able to, to take that walk, I was really happy. I was really energetic uh, during the walk, but then I got home and I sat on the couch and I felt as if I just walked into a brick wall. Like mm. I got so, so super tired. I fell asleep within an hour after getting home and I have been sleeping for days on end after that. And you weren't, you weren't jogging, just walking just walking like very wow. slowly. I actually went into the woods, just looking around, you know, taking a stroll. Mm -hmm. So yeah, like it really feels as if with everything you do, if you have COVID, you have to pace yourself. You cannot go over your own, um, your own limits, but that's the thing. What are these new limits? A lot of patients don't actually know. Um, 
the limits that I have now are so much lower than they used to be before. I mean, I'm a 28 year old. I, I could walk for hours on end without having any issues. Um, and now like even going for a, a 20 minute walk can already be too much if I haven't slept enough on that day. So not having slept enough, maybe like me sleeping nine hours, but just with having this disease, it in this situation, it's not enough anymore. So you always have to make sure that you don't go over your own limits. Um, you eat well, you sleep well, um, you don't have too long conversations um, because even conversations can be very tiring. Um, even like in my initial infection, I, I wasn't even able to, to watch TV because my eyes were blurry and I just couldn't keep up with what was being said and I wasn't registering anything. And this, these are things that a lot of patients are actually reporting. So long COVID, it's really difficult to, to find one word or even like a list of symptoms because it really covers a lot of different symptoms. Um, people really experience disease, this disease in, in many different ways. And therefore, it is so important to find the root of what is causing long COVID. And of that, we don't really have a definitive answer yet. And what would you say is the, the state of the endeavor to try to find uh, what, is, what is really going on? Well, that um, for that, I really like to point at the long COVID advocacy groups. Um, because with long COVID, like I said, it wasn't being acknowledged. And therefore, all these groups in every different country around the world, they have all sprung up. Um, and they have done their own advocacy. It is just patients coming together, seeing this need for, uh, for more research, for recognition, for the, the right type of care. Um, so we now see that there's a lot of uh, patient-led research. Um, there are a lot of groups that have been reaching out to uh, research networks to see if they can set up their own studies because they know the type of symptoms that should be studied. Um, and I just love seeing this. Uh, and of course, now that has resulted in that we know a lot more uh, about what it is and uh, the people that it can affect, but it's not nearly enough. Um, and I, I guess that is to be expected. It is still a new disease. Um, but there is a lot happening and I'm really happy to, to share with you too. Uh, it's actually the first time I'm sharing this, but we are also at the Zero COVID Alliance. We are actively um, putting these um, people that want to initiate research into long COVID. We're putting them in contact with uh, with aid networks to see if they can get the funding for it. Um, we have researchers reaching out to us saying, well, we want to study this particular symptom, or we have patients saying, we, we really want a study being done into this particular area. And we're, we just have built up this huge network um, to be able to connect them all with each other and further this research. So I'm really happy we can we can actively play a part in that as well because that is what is necessary not just for um, the not just for the patients but also to be able to to have 
honest reporting on the risk of COVID for everyone. Seems like there's not a project that you're not involved with. Well, that's the thing. I, I could say that I am personally involved in all of this, but that is just not true. Um, I've set up a huge network of people that all want to help. Um, I mean, I'm part of the End Coronavirus Network. That is a network of over 6,000 volunteers from around the world who came together in, in one workplace just because they want to offer their, their help. And, and that is really what is necessary because this is a global pandemic. It hits everyone. And therefore our efforts to stop it should come from every single part of the world. And I'm just happy that I can facilitate that in, in the small things that I do because it really comes down to connecting the right people with each other. Um, Absolutely. And how, how, have, uh, how have your lungs been feeling, Vicky? Has has there been much improvement there? Have you, have you gone to a any sort of physician to see what your lung capacity is or anything like that? Or have you heard about what what uh, from the people you've been in communication with with how their um, how their breathing is doing? You know, months that on. That is really a, a funny thing. Um, so I had pneumonia in the first couple of months, um, but this is actually the only examination I was able to arrange for myself uh, pretty short term. And when I say short term, I, I still mean seven months uh, to be able to get my lungs examined, but they look super healthy. Oh, and my lung capacity is actually better than expected. So all of this, it came as a shock to me. Um, also, mind you, these were two examinations. I haven't gotten a CT scan yet. Um, and it is being said that a lot of people actually have very uh, thin scarring in their lungs. Uh, I haven't, haven't been able to get the right examination to see if that's the case with me. I do have uh, pneumonia kind of, yeah, coming around the corner every now and then. Um, but that is always mild. Um, well, <laughs> after the initial infection, it has become mild, but I now feel it coming like every couple of weeks. Um, my, my lungs start hurting for a little bit, and I know I have to sleep some more and, and eat a little better and, and kind of take a step back and, and let everything recover. But yeah, in, in terms of... Um, um, all my symptoms, my, my lungs seem to be doing, yeah, pretty okay, actually. Well, that's good that 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 didn't didn't worsen it. And is that um, something that you you've heard from some of the people that you're communicating with too? Is that uh, the, the the lung complications yeah. ease up over time? Yeah, actually, yes. Um, so what a lot of patients say is that um, their their lung issues are clearing up. But uh, a lot of people still report that they have heart issues and neurological issues. So uh, what I hear now from people who are really long haulers, I mean, we call them long haulers, but as, I mean, you have to term long COVID. And some people have COVID for six weeks and they already think it's a long time and they see themselves as long COVID patients. But like I said, I'm already like one year in, so... When I talk about long haulers, I sometimes mean the people that are like at 10 months. Mm -hmm. But what they mentioned to me is that they mostly have these neurological issues. Uh, they have thrombosis issues, heart issues, kidney issues. 
Um, but then again, it also is different for everyone. So some people also still have lung issues one year in. Wow, some people still do, incredible. Um, well, I think we should probably wrap this up pretty soon here, Vicki. Um, but you've gone over a bunch, but I, I'm wondering as well too, what you think is gonna be, what it's gonna be like um, in the Netherlands in, in the upcoming months. Um, I know that uh, you spoke at the very beginning of our conversation uh, alluding to a possible third wave, and that seems to be possibly in, encroaching in a lot of places. Of course, these new variants are at play there. And uh, you also have uh, an election coming up pretty soon. So what, what do you uh, see is going to be the case in the Netherlands over the next few months? Well, that is a very difficult question to answer because <laughs> I think it all comes down to what is going to happen tomorrow on the 2nd of March. So, um, yeah, we had cases going up again uh, last week and we now have the, the, the B117, so what others may call the UK variant. Right. Uh, we have it all throughout the country now. Uh, it, it really took over the original variant. Oh, has it? Sorry, Vicky. It's B one one seven has completely surpassed the the initial one now. Yes. In, in, oh, interesting. Not not fully yet. I think we're about three quarters now of all cases. Oh um, oh oh. So so B one one seven is three quarters in the Netherlands. So it, it's the it's the vast majority. Yeah. Oh okay. Wow. Um, and we also have the South African variant in the Netherlands uh, that's being spotted as well. Um, and still with the R above one, I mean, we have been in a, a, what they say a lockdown. Um, yeah, for lockdown. Yeah, I mean, our lockdown means that people can still go out um, into the streets. Uh, they, they can still like get takeout and, and all these things. Uh, you can still have people over. Um, there is not much enforcement and um, we've had a curfew as well. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, but now uh, we're actually easing restrictions. So um, we had the primary schools opening at the beginning of the last, uh, was it 8th of February? And now they're uh, opening the um, secondary schools. But at the same time, a lot of different sectors think it is taking too long or it has taken too long. Uh, so there has been a lot of talk about um, the bars and restaurants wanting to reopen per tomorrow against government policy. So I think a, a, a large part of what we can expect really uh, hangs on that. But at the same time, it doesn't look good. I mean, we have had our hospitals to uh, basically almost full capacity uh, for weeks now. <clears throat> And now with easing restrictions, I mean, we already know that there's um, not much space to actually admit new patients to. So um, it, it doesn't look good. It doesn't look pretty. And, and the, the thing that worries me most about this um, is that because we've had so much misinformation over the last year, uh, we are now in this, um, in this spot where people 
um, like I said, they still don't wear masks. I mean, if I go to the um, uh, to the grocery store and I only go to like this mini market here in my neighborhood, um, but like even the people that run the market, they don't believe in masks, um, and so they they have to um, enforce this mask mandate in stores, but they don't wear them themselves, so they don't expect the customers to. And therefore, the customers that do wear a mask, that they get really angry at the people around them. It really causes this huge divide between different groups within our, our population. And I think that is going to come to this high point and it's going to cause a lot of tension. And it is, it is the the worst possible situation in terms of cognitive dissonance that you could be in during a pandemic. So if there's not going to be a huge shift in government communication, crisis communication, I fear that the next month or one and a half month will be yeah, pretty terrible. That's not good. And do you, do you anticipate that the, that the uh, VVD led coalition will just be in, in governance still after the election. Sorry, what was that? Do, do, you, do you anticipate that that after the election that uh, the, the present govern, government will, will still be uh, in power, the, the present coalition? Well, I can only hope that the, the people learn from all of this and they won't elect him again. But then again, when I look at the, the most recent polling, um, I mean, Mark Rutte is, is still all the way up in all the polls, so I hope it won't be the case. I mean, they actually resigned over a pretty huge scandal. Um, yeah, yeah. What, 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 what happened there where the, 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 the whole cabinet ended up uh, resigning? Yeah, there was a tax scandal. So our, our tax office, uh, they actually did some racial profiling, and because of that, uh, a lot of people that got child support for um, for daycare, um, yeah, for daycare, uh, they had to pay everything that re that they received over uh, some years. They had to pay it all back because the government said that they were frauds when they were in reality they weren't frauds, but it was just one big mistake. So they were wrongfully accused of being frauds, and and therefore uh, a lot of people ended up in debt ended up having to um, um, to sell their home. Uh, some there, there was even one person who committed suicide because of all of this. So this is a huge scandal. And the thing is, it's not just one scandal. I mean, my government has had so many scandals over the last 10 years. I mean, Rutte has been our prime minister for more than 10 years now. Uh, and it's just, it's a whole list now, but people seem to be so used to having him um, do do a, a lot of people support uh, his party and uh, some of the other parties in in, in that coalition um, out of a concern for the uh, prevalence of oh what are they called the PVV Geert Wilders party? Oh yeah, that's that's a whole uh, different issue. I mean, yeah, we we also have a, an alt right party here. Uh, who has been gaining uh, a lot more voters? Um, I, I believe out, out of out of maybe except for Le Front National, out out of all the far right parties in Europe, they they might be 
the most prominent. Yeah, I think so too. And the worst part is they're not even the only one in the country. We have another one. So yeah, like I can I can assume that this is something that is going through people's minds. Um, but also just over the last year, um, our political system, our political parties, they shifted so much um, that a lot of the, the super left parties, they cannot be considered left anymore. The, the parties that were being seen as, um, as liberals, they are more right parties now. Um, and therefore, the people that are being that are used to voting for a particular party, they don't even know what to vote for anymore. And honestly, I'm one. I'm one of them. Mm-hmm. I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm with you here too. And and on just on the specific COVID issue, it's it, it's not even that. It's just the the right wing parties uh, in various places that are handling this so terribly, which is. You know the, the the case in your country where the the coalition is a mix of you know continental liberals and 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 conservatives and have just been a, a disaster, but like taken in Sweden, it's it's the the social democrats that have just done a, a terrible job, and then mm-hmm. their their neighboring Norwegians and the Solberg and and her conservative government have you know there's better countries that that have handled it like the Kiwis, but overall as far as Europe's concerned, they've they've done admirably. Um, it, it's 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 really all over the place where uh, which governments are are just totally being negligent on this issue. Yeah, it's actually quite funny because some of our groups uh, you could um, see them as as leftist groups, uh, but at the same time, in some countries, it's actually the the conservative or more right wing parties who are advocating for stronger measures. Um, so it's really all over the place and it makes working together challenging from time to time, um, but not impossible. Um, I mean, this this shouldn't be a political issue. This, sh- this is about human lives. Certainly. So if, if there's any way to keep politics out of it, I am all for that. <laughs> Amen. I, I think I think that note there is a, a beautiful place to stop it. So um, Vicky, uh, please tell the audience where they can hunt you down and, and keep tabs on you uh, in, in any way, shape, and form. Well, I can ask everyone, I would like to invite everyone to look at our website, uh, which is the uh, zerocovidalliance.org. If you are based in the Netherlands, you can always look at containmentnu.nl, and you can find me on basically every social, I mean, this pandemic has really forced me to become active online. So you can find me personally on, on Instagram, on Facebook, uh, on Twitter, even on LinkedIn. Um, if you have uh, your own effort in your own country or you'd like to start your own effort regarding COVID, uh, do reach out to us. That can be uh, per email or in a DM. I mean, we check them all day, every day. That's uh, with, that's with Zero COVID Alliance? Yes, that's yeah. with the Zero COVID Alliance, but also me personally. I mean, it's so intertwined now. People know to find me everywhere. <laughs> and, and what's, is it just, uh, what, what's the URL for Zero COVID Alliance? Oh, I, I just mentioned it's the zerocovidalliance.org. Oh, geez, sorry. My, my, <laughs> my, my, my brain is, is falling apart now. Awesome. Well, <laughs> thank you so much, Vicki. And I imagine this is extremely informative for a lot of people. 
And I, I think so. I think you you touched on a lot of things that are discussed way too little. And I think for uh, a lot of the work that you've done in your organizations has been of great benefit to a lot of people. And I think you've helped out your a lot of people in your country with your legal battle that you've had there. So thank you. And thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. This is, as I'm sure anybody who clicked on this notice, this is the first episode. And thank you so much for being a part of the initial episode here. So thank you so much, Vicki. Thanks for listening to this episode. The music you hear on this show is from the Jeff Lapp Trio out of Montreal. Find them at jefflapp.com. Shout out to Tara for doing the graphics for COVID on air. A huge thanks to my editor, Jeff, at Bean Co. Studios in Regina, Saskatchewan. Please visit ncoronavirus.org for more information on ECV. Click on Join Us. Through that, you can volunteer with ECV. And you can subscribe to our newsletter, which is full of great information, shot straight to your inbox from our delightful newsletter editor, Tracy. Also, please check out the blog at ECV. And hats off to Scott, our impeccable blog editor. You can find ECV on Facebook and Instagram and on Twitter at ncovid19. You can find me on Twitter at Mr. Farden. It's at M-R-F-A-R-D-E-N. Until next time.